Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Everyday Theology Podcast, where we as ordinary pastors connect theological truths to ordinary everyday believers just like you and me. My name is Ben Campbell. I'm one of your hosts here at the Everyday Theology Podcast, and I'm joined by two of your other hosts. I'm joined by Matt Mauser, that would be M.M., and I'm joined by Dustin Walters. How's it going, gentlemen? Shalom and good day. I love that greeting. Peace in the Lord. It's good to be here with you all. And I'm really excited about our topic today. This is one of those topics that, dear listener, if you are, uh, if you've been around for some time, uh, we enjoy talking about theology here on this podcast. And and this this subject that we're going to talk about today is actually one of the more um, it can be a little bit more head heady at times, and yet it is relevant to know who is in Christ. So today, dear listener, we're going to pick up our Four Lindsay and Fridays. It is the first of the month. Can you guys believe this episode is airing on the first Friday in March, in May? <laughs> Sorry, what month? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's it's May 5th, man, and it, we are just absolutely just going um, at an unstoppable pace through the year. It's crazy. It's also fascinating that when this episode is released, I will be completing my Master of Divinity at Welsh yep. Divinity School. And, there you go. Uh, so I'm in two places at, at once today. I, I'm here on the podcast with you guys, and I'm graduating at Welch because it's the first Friday of May. So anyway, yeah, we're really excited about this, uh, dear listener. And this, if you're following along, uh, this is from Four Lines' Quest for Truth, chapter 15. Yeah, so so we're going to uh, study... Chapter 15 of Quest for Truth is just an introduction into the study of election. And so um, basically, we're going to highlight just the two sides of the um the election argument if you will um just as four lines does we're not going to get as deep into the weeds as he does because he's got probably a good 30 to 40 pages here um of of different information let's actually go 43 pages here i just looked and so what we're going to do is we're just going to show the differences and obviously we will uh, we're going to have um, a little bit of a uh, preferential treatment toward the Arminian side because of who we are and 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 our um, spectrum of theology but I think it is good to um, to study these things and to um, sort of expose that there's really not a lot of difference between reformed Arminians and reformed Calvinists even though um, this is probably the biggest disagreement, would you say? Yeah, I think the discussion on election and eternal security, those two really kind of define the contours of, of the movement that are contrasted. Now, this is probably a simple question, but when we talk about the doctrine of election, we're talking about the differences between James Arminius and John Calvin. 
Brothers, uh, this may be a stupid question, but did the word election get invented by by Calvin or Arminius, or is this just made up theology speak? How how did we come up with this word that's called election, and what does it mean? Well, it, it turns out it's actually in the Bible. Now, uh, in the places where it's in the Bible, it did not come in that English form, but uh no, the answer to that question is those guys, those men, did not create the word elect. I love it. It's actually in the Bible. There's many, many examples of that. And let me just say from the, the beginning, I always find it funny. Like There are some that are Reformed Armenians that really, uh, they steer clear of any any use of that word. If there's a passage that makes mention of the elect, they're like, yeah, we're just going to, you know, hop, skip and jump right over this one so we don't have to deal with it. But I think we'd all agree that's not an honest treatment of the word of God. Um, and and there's still much to be gained about what the, the Bible says about the elect. I would also note, too, um, Paul says it a couple times in Romans, but Peter in 2 Peter 1 verse 10 says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So elections, like, like Matt says, election's a Bible word. Election's not a, not a theological, uh, like in our theological dictionary. It's a Bible word. And it is something that uh, that the scriptures talk about. That'll preach. So today yeah. we're going to frame our discussion. Um, so chapter 15 in Quest for Truth really is kind of divided into two major sections. Section one is the classical Calvinism understanding on the doctrine of election. And then Four Lines wraps up chapter 15, introducing the classical Arminian view. It's important that we recognize that he uses the word classical there. Um, classical Calvinism is contrasted with some form of Calvinism that is different than that which John Calvin actually taught, as the same with Arminianism. Uh, Four Lines preferred the term classical Arminian Picker really liked the term Reformed Arminian. It's the same thing. They're talking about the Arminianism of Arminius himself. And so as we frame this discussion today, let's get right into the swimming ocean of uh, the raging sea that is the doctrine of election. Let's I about to say the waves, are, the waves are rough. I don't even know why I took the metaphor so far, but that's okay. <laughs> Um, so let's look at what was the Calvinistic view of election. Yeah, so I think I think really it's interesting that um, that we have the Calvinistic view here because there's so many different spectrums even in Calvinism. Um, I mean, and now people who don't believe in certain um, letters of the acronym TULIP, still call themselves a Calvinist. They may just call themselves a three or a four-point Calvinist. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance here. But um if we're speaking of the the really the ones who are more true to reform theology and, and Calvinism, 
there's really three three ways to describe the decrees of God in Calvinism. The first is what is called supralapsarianism. We're not going to try to spell that for you. Um, but basically what that means is that God decrees to save some and reprobate others. God creates both the elect and the reprobate. God permits the fall of both. And God decrees to provide salvation only for the elect. So the order of decrees here is salvation, creation, fall, and then providing salvation in supralapsarianism. The second is infralapsarianism, and that is the decree to create human beings, the decree to permit the fall, the decree to elect some and reprobate others, and the decree to provide salvation only for the elect. So you can see here that the difference between supra and infra is that the decree to cre create human beings and the decree to um, permit the fall is different um, in, in the order of decrees. In the supra, we have the salvation, meaning they were saved from eternity past. In infra, we have creation fall, then we have election, then we have salvation. But then there's one that's called sublapsarianism, and that is the decree to create human beings, the decree to permit the fall, the decree to provide salvation sufficient for all, and the decree to save some and reprobate others. So between supra, infra, and sub, what you have, again, as you can see, is different degrees, not decrees, but degrees of election. You have a supra that's very deterministic and very high on election. You have an infra that's still very deterministic, but that's a little bit less emphatic on the election to salvation. Um, but then when you get to the sub, you have salvation that's uh, provided for all. So Again, it's still very deterministic because it's saving some and reprobating others, but it it also shows that there is a sufficient sacrifice for all people. And so from the beginning, what Four Lines is doing is he's showing us that um, all of these approaches, approaches are still um, nested in the entire Calvinistic argument. Right. And that, that his, that overview of the differing views of election, even within Calvinism is important for our present discussion because it situates the doctrine of the elect, uh, the doctrine of those who are called to be in Christ uh, within a particular framework. <clears throat> and so what four lines is doing is he doesn't want to just assume that everyone who's reading is going to agree that there's only he's he's saying that there are differing views even within Calvinism on what election is and what it does so what it is and how it functions and so he mentions that to to show his reader a a certain kind of intellectual humility that four lines had and and he um he wants his reader to to have some buy-in and eventually he's going to move to argue toward conditional election which is contrasted with 
the Calvinistic view of condi- of unconditional. So whether you're supra, sub, or any of the other lapsarians in Calvinism, you're all going to agree that it is in some way conditioned. I mean, unconditioned. If you are a Calvinist, you believe in unconditional election. Now, you may talk about it. Ben used the word nuance. That's what Four Lines is saying here. And I think really two categories kind of uh, center on this. Two themes emerge from this, if you will, Ben and Matt. One, the theme of determinism, and two, the theme of free will. And so what Four Lines is going to try to do is demonstrate that the themes of determinism and free will against the backdrop of the doctrine of election frame how we understand what it means to be a Christian. Right. And so the the thing about it is, and I think the the major difference that we can look at here is that the supra, the infra, and the sub deal with the scope of determinism. Um, so a supralapsarian is going to be someone who believes that God, like John Calvin, who believes that God, um, I think Calvin said something, and I'm going to botch this quote, but he said something like, there's not an atom that moves unless it's ordained by God to move. Um, So, I mean, what Calvin says is that every action in the whole created world is determined by God. Um, An infralapsarian and a sublapsarian are not necessarily going to say that. Um, especially a sublapsarian claiming that God has provided salvation that is sufficient for all people. That is sort of a free offer of the gospel type of language there. Um, So when we look at this, we have to understand, um, you know, we have to ask the question, how or where do Calvinists stand on free will how how is it if god determines all things how can calvinists claim uh that human beings can make any choice of their own the the different types of determinism come to the surface of my mind in a lot of your question here um the the biggest concern for the arminian against a sort of strict determinism is that it it eliminates the human responsibility or the human response or the freedom of the human person to think with his mind, feel with his heart, act with his will. Uh, so, Ben, uh, the question that you're you're asking, I think, really is just calling us to consider what, what it is that invites Calvinists to, to think about determinism and what it is that, what what it is about determinism and free will that influence their doctrine of election. And, and I think it it really comes back to the fact that uh, you talk about not one atom, uh, not one single molecular cell can can move without God's instruction. We would we'd agree with that as Arminians. Um, four lines would agree with that. And yet, at the same time, he would probably even go as far as to say what constitutes a human person is more than what you can see at the molecular level. Yeah, well, also, you know, you you get into a question and a, a little bit of a conundrum with God's sovereignty. Um, does God and his sovereignty 
um, ordain all things to happen, therefore they happen in the way he ordains them? Or does God in his sovereignty ordain all things through the actions of human beings? A um, couple of good books um, that are not four lines, but Robert Piccarelli has a book called Free Will Revisited, but also has a book called God and Eternity and Time that are very helpful on the Reformed Arminian perspective on those two subjects, specifically free will. But uh, God and Eternity and Time uh, pick really helpfully clarifies and articulates how God acts with human beings in time and space, though he is not bound by time and space. Um, but I think more than anything, I think what we're seeing here, and, and this is ultimately where four lines gets to here. Um, but at the bottom of 309, there's a there's a paragraph under a heading called an observation. And basically what what four lines says is that he 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 quotes um he quotes Feinberg here because Feinberg says, like other determinists, I claim that there is room for a genuine sense of free human action, even though such action is casually determined. Um, and he says later, he comments, the key is not whether someone's acts are casually determined or not, but rather how they are determined. If the acts are constrained, then they are not free, and the agent is not morally responsible for them. So if you think about this, what, what Four Lines basically says is that if there is such a thing as like divine determinism and then casual determinism, ultimately, God is not only the cause of our moral decisions, but he's also the cause of our immoral decisions. And that presents a problem, does it not? It does. And, you know, what? one of the things that stands out to me about this quote from Feinberg is the fact he, he mentions at the very end there that if acts are constrained, then they are not free will and the agent is not morally responsible for them. So it, it's almost as if we're, uh, or rather Feinberg and other determinists are picking and choosing. So the, the Calvinists would disagree with the fact that a human person has free will to choose to follow Jesus Christ. They would disagree with that. Well, if if a person does not have free will in all things, then they don't have free will is, is the thing that I would say. So it, it's not as if, well, you know, you have free will, but it's constrained. Um, and I would agree because some of what is hinted at in that quote is the fact that the Lord places specific situations in our lives to, to be a catalyst for certain events. We as Armenians would agree with that. The, the Lord places significance, you know, maybe the death of a loved one is what really sparks uh, the desire to know God in a person's life. Um, and so, you know, the, the accusation of the Calvinist that the Arminian does not hold so the sovereignty of God in high regard is is false. Um, but but that's where a lot of the the basis of determinism comes from is the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. What we agree, God is sovereign. 
And God can be sovereign and also allow the human person to have free will at the same time. It's too bad our listeners can't see our reactions as we're doing this because Matt was, you know, getting very excited. Like he was cheering. That's right. I'm, I'm brave, shaking my fist know. a little bit. Yeah. Free will. Woo. So I want to share with our listeners what Fourline says. And it is it is excellently articulated at the bottom of 309 because Ben has already quoted this page. Listen to this. Borlon says, in unlimited determinism, God causes people to lie, steal, murder, and commit rape, but they're not constrained to do so, according to those who advocate this view. How about four lines dropping a sentence like that at the end of a page? I mean, that is that is exactly the thing. There has to be accountability for human actions, and and I think that the Arminian system ultimately is going to give you more accountability than the Calvinistic system. Well, and you think about it too, it's like Matt said, you either have free will or you don't. Like, there's not really an in-between. Like, in the most kind and respectful way, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You know, either human beings are created to make choices or they're not. And constrained free will is not free will if it's constrained that's like saying you're free to go but you've still got one chain on you you know you're still hooked to a fetter you know so it's a logical contradiction exactly it's a it's a logical fallacy to say that you have something but uh it's not it's not fully yours you know um and so there, there is a logical contradiction there. Um, things are either determined or they're determined in that God. Well, let me let me say it this way. Things are either determined by God divinely or they're determined by God through human action and human will and human volition. Those are 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 not neither of those um, are saying that God is not sovereign. In fact, Pick and Four Lines both say that God is less sovereign if He just determines all things. Now, Calvinists um, will caricature the Arminian side and say, "Well, if if God allows everybody to make choice, and then He's not sovereign over the world like he, like the Bible says He is." Well, actually. He's so sovereign that he allows people to make their own choices, um, even though he sovereignly and divinely knows which choice they're going to make. But as Pickerly says, nothing is certain until it happens. And you talk about the certainty of those things, and that really is a nice segue into the next section of this, part two, uh, where Four Lines really introduces classical Arminian thought to, to review. Part one, there are three basic assumptions that Forlan says Calvinism makes about the doctrine of election. Assumption number one, the sovereignty of God requires unconditional election and thus precludes conditional election. So that's what Matt was talking about, sovereignty of God. Number two, total depravity precludes the response of faith from a sinner unless he's first regenerated by the Spirit. And number three, that salvation is free precludes 
conditional elections. If these three assumptions are true, Calvinism has made its case. If these assumptions are not true, Calvinism's in trouble. So obviously he's going to take the rest of this half of the chapter in, in 15 to talk about, he's going to respond to each of these assumptions from an Arminian framework, which I think is extremely helpful. Right. So there's a, um, there's a couple of different things in going to the Arminian perspective. One of the things that Four Lines comes back to is his um, is his influence and response. Um, here's what he says. He says, there is no such thing as a person doing or not doing something without having made a decision. This is true regardless of how strong the influence may be upon him or her. So, again, anything we do, we do because we choose to do it. That's what Four Lines is saying. Um, and it doesn't matter how strong the influence, we still are going to make the choice to do that. It's like peer pressure, like with your kids. Like there's going to, or when you're growing up as a teenager, you're peer pressured to doing some things, but it doesn't matter how strong that pressure is, you're still going to make the choice whether or not to do it. We think about the pressure to uh, com commit certain things or to do certain things or even to think in certain ways. What Forlons really is wanting to, to get at, and we've introduced this before here, is the difference between the influence and response model of influencing human persons to respond in, in saving faith and the cause and effect. The Calvinistic model, the the Calvinistic model of election of necessity is rooted in a cause and effect model. Uh, but Four lines is classical Arminian position is going to be rooted in an influence and response model, which I think allows room for so much more possibility than the strict determinism or whatever. And I'm so thankful for the doctrine of election. When we, we say elections conditioned on faith, we don't. And this goes in again to free will. We're, we're not saying that uh, you just wake up one day and decide to be saved. There, there are different factors that come into your life that lead you to respond in saving faith. But the reason why we believe in conditional election is because faith is an act of putting trust in. I mean, I think about the New Testament word is pistuo. Pistuo is actively putting one's trust in someone else, someone or something else. And so what Christ calls us to do is to pistuo, to put our faith in him. That's an active verb, and we're not passive agents in our salvation. And I think that's the key point of the Arminian position as a whole is uh, we're not just passively responding to God. Just as there is active and passive obedience with Christ, I think that can be, be true of us too when it comes to salvation and how we respond to the Holy Spirit, which we talked about on the last episode, uh, is uh, just are we responding freely? Because if he's forcing us to do it, then it's it's the same as if you guys tell your kids, go clean your room. Well, they don't want to do it. Go clean your room. And so you keep on at them until they go clean their room. Um, there There is an important thing to say here about the difference between the influence and response and the cause-effect model. Yeah, and and I think what, what you're saying, Dustin, is kind of a, a good um, indication of what four lines is getting at is that the real argument's not for free will. The real argument is about are people personal beings 
Um, he said, does God deal with the fallen man as a person? If he does, he deals with him as one who thinks, feels, and acts. To do otherwise undercuts the personhood of man. This God will not do, not because something is being imposed on God to which he must submit, but because God designed the relationship to be a relationship between personal beings. And so what, what Fourline says here is that people created in the image of God are personal beings, and personal beings make choices. They think with their minds, they feel with their heart, and then they act with their will. So there is a robust anthropology that emerges from Fourlines' view of the doctrine of election and, and thinking about what, what are the implications that a robust anthropology has to one's understanding of soteriology, ecclesiology, missiology, and all the other ologies. Right, right. And, and so the thing about it is, I think, is is what we're we're ultimately getting at here is that um, for for four lines and for reformed Armenians is that there is um, there is room for human freedom in uh, the way things act and the way God sovereignly ordains the universe. Um, Dustin mentioned the the way in which we respond to Christ by faith. The thing about it is, even with Reformed Arminians, and Matt, you might can speak to this, but uh, that we don't respond by faith unless the gospel is presented. It's not as though we're choosing something um, just out of our own will, um, but that we are choosing based on the drawing power of God. That's right. Yeah, and we would uh, agree with the fact that that God draws men to himself based on the hearing and understanding of his word and the truth of the gospel, those sorts of things. And it's it's that's vitally important for when it comes to understanding this specific aspect of theology, really, um, that that the Lord draws people to himself. Um, and there is a, there's a decision to be made it, it is, is what I'm hearing truth. It, is this the, is Jesus Christ the coming Messiah? Is he the Lord of, do I, am I going to make him the Lord of my life? That That's a, a, a decision that someone has to make. And, um, but the Lord still has sovereignty and influence over that in uh, in coordinating specific events in a person's life. And you hear people in people's testimonies all the time about how they, you know, were saved in a revival meeting or it was a Sunday night and they weren't going to go to church and someone invited them. And I fully believe it was in God's will for that person to be there. It was a divine appointment. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things that that you mentioned is like, again, like we're all capable of making a decision. It's not as though our wills are so free that we choose what we want. Uh, Four Lines makes it clear on, I believe it's 316 or 314, excuse me. But he says that um, free will does not mean that we're free to do whatever we want, but it means that we rationally consider a matter and make a choice. 
And so, it, again, it's not as though we have just this sovereign ultimate freedom to just do or choose whatever we want, because the Bible makes it very clear that if we do, we're going to choose our flesh every time. Um, yeah. But but Four Lines also says that it's all over Scripture that the way God deals with people is through um, the assumption that they are capable of making decisions. Mm. And, yeah, and yeah. that that's different. And that goes to something that I think is very important. Um, and that is this on this is on the middle of 321. But he has a little section. It's 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 two paragraphs, but it's just on the need for a theology of personality. Um because if we are rational beings and personal beings, like Four Lines has said all over this book, then we have the ability to think with our minds and feel with our hearts and act with our wills. You you don't have Four Lines kind of gives the uh, the a little bit of a critique to theology and to theologians, and he says there's very rarely um, anybody who mentions the theology of personality. Right. And so um, he, he mentions this. He says, why do you think it's so hard to find a theology book that defines and expands the treatment of human personality? And Fourline says it's because there's no place for it in deterministic thinking. Yeah. Well, what would you say to that, Matt? I mean, I, I would agree with it. And in fact, you know, I, just as, as we're discussing, this whole idea of personality is so important it, it, because it's one of the unique things about God is how he has created each individual as a an individual with a unique personality. I mean, it's kind of cheesy, but the whole idea of, a you know, a snowflake, like every human right. person has got a, a unique to them uh, code of DNA. Or like a and thumbprint. That's right. That's right. And so th th those things are are significant. And it's it's inconsistent to say, well, determinism doesn't allow for that sort of personality. Even even a a loose determinism, as we've talked about, isn't going to allow for a person to have a unique person. All the elect are the elect. They they act like the elect. Well. That's true to a certain extent. I mean, you look at what Jesus says in the Gospels about how a, a, a disciple of Jesus is to live. Okay, th there are some common themes there, but each individual believer and follower of Jesus is still going to be unique in their own ways. Right, because we've been created by person with a personality. Yeah, uh, I want to to back up and ask you a question, Ben, because this is something that, that I'm kind of thinking about. How would the determinist, one thing that you mentioned earlier, ha having to do with, um, you know, a, a person's will, and if left to our own devices, we're going to sin every time. But that's the beautiful thing about the gospel is that our will begins to change and, and is uh, kind of to allude back to what we talked about last week with the catechism and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, regenerates us and the sanctification process, and we become more and more like Jesus Christ. But when when I look at the 
the fact that we still have a sin nature. Mm-hmm. How would the term the determinist speak to the sin nature of a person? Because if if we're saying that a person's actions are guided by God in you know every every little detail, how how does sin play into that? It, hopefully that that question makes sense. Yeah, I think that's what four lines sort of described early on in the in the in the chapter is that like like the quote that Dustin read, if God is the uh the author of all things and the determiner of all things, that may not be a word necessarily, and I'm not sure if it is. But then he's also the cause of the Holocaust, right? And he's also Mm -hmm. the cause of like, of, you know, uh, Dave Koresh and Jim Jones and the Kool-Aid, you know? I mean, that's that's the thing is, and and some see that as like a logical fallacy to say such a thing. But the thing about it is, is if every single thing in the world is determined by God divinely, then you it's either all or nothing. Like you can't say there's certain things that are determined by God. And then there's other things that aren't because that's just a sinful man. Well, again, either God is ultimately and divinely determined, deterministic, or he's given human beings the quality and the capability of making choices. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and that's, that's the thing is I don't understand that. That's where I think there's a lot of inconsistency here um, with the determinism, right? Is because, like we want determinism in our salvation and we want determinism from and we want to heighten the sovereignty of God. But the thing about it is, is um, it's inconsistent to say that God did not determine the Holocaust as well if he determines everything else. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, and you don't want to be too, too, too harsh on that. Let me just read something from from page 325 he says if god is the cause of everything why would he cause and he four lines lists a a a bunch of armenians but he says the armenians that i have mentioned in this chapter and a host of others to be armenian why did he also cause men like augustine calvin toplady gill spurgeon edwards hodge and others to be calvinists what a rational cause would you write what a rational god cause devout believers to arrive at conclusions that are diametrically opposed to one another, he did if unlimited determinism is true. He also says, when it comes to sin, guilt, judgment, and punishment for sin, in deterministic thinking, the problem is not solved by saying the person did what he wanted to do. He or she was not coerced. The point is that in determinism, the quote, want to, is determined by God. Yet we see God punishing people for doing what he casually determined that they would do if unlimited determinism is true. So, so again, even, even with hard unlimited determinism, there's still an element saying, well, that means that God gives us the desire to want to sin. Yeah, yeah. And we want to talk about God's sovereignty. Nothing lessens the sovereignty and the holiness of God than that. That's right. So... I think I think there's there's so many things here that that four lines gets 
two in this section, but ultimately, like he gets into the sovereignty of God question. He gets um, in type, in so many types of uh, different decrees. He lists uh, three different types of decrees with Arminian theology, the efficacious decree. Um, that's what God decrees that certain things will come to pass. There's an unconditional efficacious decree that are not dependent on conditions for their fulfillment. And then there's also the conditional efficacious decree, which is that God efficaciously decreed that certain things would take place when certain conditions were met. Um, and so um, that's what Four Lines kind of shows that there's like, there is a, a little bit of a, a pushback from Arminians uh, on God's decrees for the world. Um, but if you think about this, um, Fourline says all, all acts of human beings come under this permission, whether evil or good. And that is the act of God permitting certain things, but not efficaciously bringing them all to fruition. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Matt, give us some concluding thoughts here as we wrap this up. Well, it, it is, uh, a dense subject when talking about election, but I think it's a helpful one to understand um, the order of the various lapsarianisms and the, the kind of the the argument against that, and, and really looking into determinism and and seeing the the logical difficulties with with determinism, and I think that's what this ultimately comes down to. We've talked in recent podcasts about the fact that God is mysterious, mm. but he still is known. We still have the ability and should be able to understand generally the ways that he works. And I think Four Lines does a great job of bringing that out and helping uh, really anyone who reads this text to understand um, where the where the the strong points in, in each of these are, as well as uh, where maybe the, the faulty areas are. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's important to understand, too, um, that the whole of Scripture presents people as people who right. make decisions and who... Um, who choose it's it, it's not as though again god doesn't choose that that those things for him because that would mean they aren't people they're machines they're robots they're just they're just kind of like puppets almost yeah um kind of like and, a human go, go ahead. ahead go no go ahead I was just going to say that it's important for us to keep in mind in the language that we use um the question of why did God cause this to happen versus why did God allow this to happen? Yeah. Um, th those, th that's the difference really in my mind between uh, the Calvinist point of view on election and the Arminian point of view on election. Yeah, that's right. Well, my friends, I hope that today's podcast from Mr. Four Lines has been beneficial. We pray that these truths continue to have significant impact on your life for the glory of God. We hope that you will join us 
next week and many weeks after as we continue to uh, make this journey as everyday pastors.